Lesson 6 for April 29 through to May 5. Suffering for Christ. Sabbath afternoon, April 29. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to open your word again and... In this series of lessons, we learn a lot about what it is to be alive and to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. But we also learn that Jesus suffered and that we can experience suffering as well. We pray that as we open your word, that your Holy Spirit will guide us and bless us, that from your word may come the blessings that we need that will help us in our daily walk with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Let's read that again, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. The history of persecution in the first few centuries of Christianity is well known. The Bible itself, especially the book of Acts, gives glimpses into what awaited the church. Persecution, with the sufferings it brings, is also clearly a present reality in the life of the Christians to whom Peter is writing. In the first chapter, Peter comments that now, for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1 verses 6 and 7. Almost the last comment in the letter also deals with the same idea in 1 Peter 5.10. And, after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, support, strengthen, and establish you. Within the short epistle, there are no fewer than three extended passages that deal with his readers' suffering for Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, 18 to 25, chapter 3, verses 13 to 21, and chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. By any reckoning, then, the suffering caused by persecution is a major theme of First Peter. And to that we turn now. Sunday, April 30. Persecution of Early Christians. Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 6 and chapter 5 verse 10. What is Peter talking about and how did he tell his readers to respond to what they were facing? 1 Peter 1 verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And chapter 5 and verse 10. But now the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. For the first few centuries, just being a Christian could result in a horrible death. A letter written to the Roman Emperor Trajan illustrates how precarious the safety of the early Christians was. 
The letter was from Pliny, who at the time of writing was governor of Pontus and Bithynia, that's from AD 111 to 113, and two of the regions mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Pliny had written to Trajan asking for guidance regarding what to do about people who were accused of being Christians. He explained that those who had insisted that they were Christians, he had executed. Others said that although they had earlier been Christians, they no longer were. Pliny allowed them to prove their innocence by telling them to offer incense to statues of Trajan and other gods and to curse Jesus. Worshipping a living emperor was rarely practised in Rome, although in the eastern part of the Roman Empire to which First Peter is sent, the emperors allowed and sometimes encouraged the setting up of temples to themselves. Some of these temples had their own priests and altars on which sacrifices were made. When Pliny got Christians to show their loyalty to the empire by offering incense and worship to a statue of the emperor, he was following a long-standing practice in Asia Minor. There were times in the first century that Christians faced serious jeopardy for just being Christians. This was particularly true under Emperors Nero, who ruled from AD 54 to 68, and Domitian from AD 81 to 96. Yet the persecution pictured in First Peter is of a more local kind. Specific examples of the persecution Peter speaks of are few in the letter, but perhaps they include false accusations, as in 1 Peter 2.12, and reviling and reproach in 1 Peter 3.9 and 4.14. While the trials were severe, they do not appear to have resulted in widespread imprisonment or death, at odds with significant elements of wider first-century society. They could suffer because of their beliefs. Thus, Peter was addressing a serious concern when he wrote this first epistle. Monday, May 1, Suffering and the Example of Christ Question. Read through 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. How should Christians respond to those who would bring them suffering because of their faith? What is the connection between the sufferings of Jesus and the sufferings experienced by the believers because of their faith? So, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defence to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, 
by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. When Peter says in verse 14, If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, he is but echoing the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He then says that Christians should not fear those who are attacking them, but they should sanctify or revere Christ as Lord in their hearts, as he said in verse 15. This affirmation of Jesus in their own hearts will help to stanch the fear that they face from those opposing them. He then suggests that Christians always should be able to explain the hope that they have, but to do so in an appealing way, with meekness and fear. Fear is sometimes translated reverence, as in verses 15 and 16. Peter insists that Christians should make sure that they do not provide others with a reason to accuse them. They must keep their consciences clear, as he says in verse 16. This is important, because those who accuse a Christian will be put to shame by the blameless life of the Christian who is being accused. Clearly, there is no merit in suffering for being a wrongdoer, as he says in verse 17. It is suffering for doing good, for doing the right thing, that makes the crucial difference. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil, he writes in 1 Peter 3.17. Peter then used the example of Jesus. Christ himself suffered for his righteousness. The holiness and purity of his life stood as a constant rebuke to those who hated him. If anyone suffered for doing right and not wrong, it was Jesus. But his suffering also brought about the only means of salvation. He died in the place of sinners, the just for the unjust, as we just read in verse 18, so that those who believe in him will have the promise of eternal life. And so to finish today, have you ever suffered, not because you had done wrong, but because you had done right? What was the experience, and what did you learn about what it means to be a Christian and to reflect the character of Christ? Tuesday, May 2, The Fiery Trial Question. Read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through to 14. Why does Peter say that they shouldn't be surprised at their suffering? Also look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 and John 15 and verse 18. So, first of all, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 14. 
Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. Second Timothy 3.12 Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And John 15 verse 18 If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Peter makes it clear that to suffer persecution for being a Christian is to partake of Christ's suffering. It's not something to be unexpected. On the contrary, as Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus himself warned his followers about what they would face in Matthew 24, verses 9 through to 10. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. According to Ellen White, in Acts of the Apostles, page 576, so it will be with all who live godly in Christ Jesus. Persecution and reproach await all who are imbued with the Spirit of Christ. The character of the persecution changes with the times, but the principle, the spirit that underlies it, is the same that has slain the chosen of the Lord ever since the days of Abel. Question. Read Revelation chapter 12. And verse 17. What does it say about the reality of persecution for Christians in the last days? Revelation 12.17 And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. No question. For a faithful Christian, persecution can be an ever-present reality, which is what Peter is dealing with here in warning his readers about the fiery trial they were facing. Fire was a good metaphor. Fire can be destructive, but it also can clean away impurities. It depends on what is experiencing the fire. Houses are destroyed by fire. Silver and gold are purified by it. Though one should never purposely bring on persecution, God can bring good out of it. Thus, Peter is telling his readers, and us, yes, persecution is bad, but don't be discouraged by it as if it were something unexpected. Press on ahead in faith. And so to finish today, what can we do to uplift, encourage, and even help those who are suffering for their faith? Wednesday, May 3. Judgment and the People of God. Question. Compare 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, with Isaiah 10, verses 11 and 12, and Malachi 3, verses 1 to 6. 
What are they saying in common? First Peter chapter 4, verses 17 through to 19. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. And Isaiah chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. As I have done to Samaria and her idols, shall I not do also to Jerusalem and her idols? Therefore, it shall come to pass, when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. And Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 through to 6. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. In all these passages, the process of judgment is portrayed as starting with the people of God. Peter even links the sufferings of his readers to the judgment of God. For him, the sufferings that his Christian readers are experiencing might be nothing less than the judgment of God, which begins with the household of God. As it says in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Question. Read Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through to 8. How does this help us understand God's judgment? Luke 18, beginning at verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard him. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? In biblical times, 
judgment was usually something highly desired. The picture of the poor widow in Luke 18 captures the wider attitude toward judgment. The widow knows that she will prevail in her case if only she can find a judge who will take her case. She has insufficient money and status to get her case heard, but she finally persuades the judge to hear it and to give her what she deserves. As Jesus says, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? In Luke 18.7 Sin has brought evil into the world, and God's people throughout the ages have long awaited for God to make things right again. Revelation 15.4 reads, Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. And so, to finish today, think of all the evil in the world that has gone and still goes unpunished. Why then is the concept of justice and God's righteous judgment so crucial for us as Christians? What hope do you get from the promise that justice will be done? Thursday, May 4. Faith Amid Trials As we've seen, Peter was writing to believers who were suffering for their faith. And, as Christian history has shown, things only got worse, at least for a while. Surely many Christians in the ensuing years found solace and comfort in what Peter wrote. No doubt many do today, too. Why the suffering? That, of course, is an age-old question. The book of Job, one of the first books of the Bible to be written, has suffering as a key theme. Indeed, if there was anyone beside Jesus who suffered not as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters, 1 Peter 4.15, it was Job. After all, even God said of Job, have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Job 1 verse 8. And yet, look at what poor Job had endured, not because he was evil, but because he was good. Question. How do these texts help answer the question of the origin of suffering? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Revelation 12, verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And Revelation 2, and verse 10. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tasted, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. The short answer is that we suffer because we are in the midst of the great controversy between Christ and Satan. 
This is not a mere metaphor, a mere symbol for the good and evil in our natures. There is a real devil and a real Jesus fighting a real battle for human beings. Question. Read First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. How can what Peter wrote here help us in whatever we are struggling with now? First Peter chapter 4 and verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good, as to a faithful creator. When we suffer, especially when that suffering does not come directly as a result of our own evil doing, we naturally ask the question that Job had asked again and again. Why? And, as it is so often the case, we don't have an answer. As Peter says, all we can do, even amid our suffering, is to commit our souls to God, trusting in Him, our faithful Creator, and continue in doing good, as he said in 1 Peter 4 verse 19. So to finish today, why is knowing the character of God for yourself, knowing of his goodness and his love for you personally, such a crucial component for a Christian, especially one who is suffering? How can we all learn to come to know God and the reality of his love better? Friday, May 5. Sunday's study talked about the persecution Christians faced. Here is a fuller excerpt from the letter written to the Emperor about what Christians suffered in those early centuries. The method I have observed toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. For whatever the nature of their creed might be, I could at least feel no doubt that contumacy and inflexible obstinacy deserve chastisement. Those who denied they were, or had ever been, Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and frankincense to your image, which I had ordered to be brought for that purpose, together with those of the gods and who finally cursed Christ, none of which acts, it is said, those who are really Christians can be forced into performing, these I thought it proper to discharge. Others, who were named by their informer at first, confessed themselves Christians, and then denied it. True, they had been of that persuasion, but they had quitted it some three years, others many years, and a few as much as twenty-five years ago. They all worshipped your statue and the images of the gods, and the cursed Christ. That's from the Pliny Letters uh, by uh, William Heneman, published in 1915, book 10.0. 96, Volume 2, page 401 to 403. And that brings us to some discussion questions, and there are two this week. What was the main issue that Christians faced as revealed in the Pliny letter quoted above? 
What parallels can we see here with what will come in the last days as revealed in the third angel's message of Revelation 14.12? And what does this tell us about some of the underlying issues in the great controversy itself? Let's have a look at Revelation 14, verses 9 to 12. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb." and the smoke of their torment ascends for ever and ever. And they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And question two. Ellen White writes in The Great Controversy, page 614, Those who honour the law of God have been accused of bringing judgments upon the world, and they will be regarded as the cause of the fearful convulsions of nature and the strife and bloodshed among men that are filling the earth with woe. The power attending the last warning has enraged the wicked. Their anger is kindled against all who have received the message, and Satan will excite to still greater intensity the spirit of hatred and persecution. End of quote. Though we don't know when all this will happen, how can we always be ready to face opposition for our faith in whatever form that opposition comes? What is the key to being prepared. Inside Story Our mission story this week comes from the Cameroon, and it's by Elise Gwet. It's part of a three-part story. It's titled, God is a Faithful Husband. My husband died suddenly when I was 28, leaving me alone with five young children, no income, no home, no job, and many bills. I was so discouraged that I asked God to let me die too. I'm Elise Gwet, and I live in Cameroon in Western Africa. My husband and I attended the evangelistic meetings together and agreed that the Seventh-day Adventist Church is God's true church, that it teaches the truths of the Bible. He joined the Adventist Church at that time, but I didn't because I was concerned about my family's reaction. For one year, I resisted my husband's gentle pleading and the Holy Spirit's call and continued attending my family's church on Sunday. But God was speaking to me, and my children gently led me. Together they touched my heart. My husband didn't deal harshly with the children or me because we weren't worshipping with him. When I cooked unclean food, he didn't become angry but would quietly tell me that he didn't eat foods like that. He never forced the Sabbath on me but encouraged me to finish the housework, shopping and cooking on Friday. He wanted me to rest on Sabbath even if I didn't go to church. My husband won me to the church through his actions and his love. I eventually began attending church with him. His attitude and the Holy Spirit worked together to convict me of my errors. 
Members of the Adventist Church also were praying for me. They came and visited me and prayed and sang with me. I was impressed by their actions too and could no longer resist. One Sabbath morning I surprised my husband and told him that I and the children were going to church with him. He was so happy. When we arrived at church, the members were excited to see us. I began studying in the baptismal class and made my decision to be baptised. On my baptism day, my husband said his joy was complete. He had a faithful wife, a strong faith, and at last the family was united in the truth. That day he said that if anything happened to separate us, if he should die some day, he hoped that I would be faithful to God and the church. But what could happen? I wondered. The family was healthy. We had a home and food. What could go wrong? Well, we'll have to wait till next week to find out what went wrong. Have a great Sabbath and remember that God is always faithful. This lesson was read by Dr. Percy Harrell. It was recorded in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind. This podcast is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel.